Now, friends, our study brings us to Second Chronicles, the seventh chapter. Now, we are looking at the reign of Solomon, and most of the reign of Solomon, as we've seen, has to do with the building of the temple in Jerusalem. Out of these chapters, nine of them, five of them at least, deal with the temple, the construction of it, and the dedication of it. Now, in chapter 7, we've come to God's acceptance of it. Now, we have seen here that actually Solomon preached a sermon back over in the sixth chapter. We saw that last time. Then we saw Solomon's great prayer of dedication there. And now, we come to God's response to it. Chapter 7, verse 1, and I'm reading. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Now this is what happened, you'll recall, when Moses constructed the tabernacle in the wilderness and set it up. Then the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, God accepts the temple. As we've said, there was some deterioration we felt that had taken place. But actually, what we have here is the fire that consumes the sacrifice means that the judgment of God now has fallen upon sin. All of that looking to the coming of Christ. And on that basis, he accepts this temple. He doesn't accept it because it's beautiful. It was that. He did not accept it because there was a lavish expenditure of wealth, although that was true. He accepted it now on the basis of the fact that it's pointing to Christ, and it's his sacrifice, actually, that makes this acceptable to God. And so God accepts it, and the glory of the Lord... These people had the visible presence of God. We saw back in Romans when Paul asked the question, who are Israelites? And then he put down eight fingerprints of identification. One of those was they had the glory. No other people have had the visible presence of God except these folk. Now we are told in verse 2, "...and the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord." because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, his mercy endureth forever. And friends, that is an expression that I trust will get into your vocabulary, that you will be able to say from time to time, the Lord is good, his mercy endureth forever. And you'll recall that the psalmist said, the Lord is good, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Now, my friend, if you and I are not say-so Christians, nobody else will be, there'll be nobody in politics today, nobody in Washington or in your state capital 
or even in the city hall that's going to say God is good. Actually, they're going to tell you how great they are and what their party is doing for the country. All of the parties today and groups seem not to be doing us very much good, by the way. But the Lord is good. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And that was at the dedication here of the temple. God now has accepted. Now we have here this statement, Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. And King Solomon offered a sacrifice of twenty and two thousand oxen, a hundred and twenty thousand sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. Now, there's been a great deal of criticism by the skeptic of this statement made here. To begin with, they say this is an extravagant offering and sacrifice. That is the first criticism that is made. The second is that it would have been physically impossible to offer that many on the altar. May I say that is a criticism that you hear. And then the third is that this, of course, is something that was not necessary and that they shouldn't have killed all these animals. And the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, I'm sure, would protest this. All right, let's look at that for a moment in the light of the Word of God and in light today of what we know. First of all, they didn't offer them all on just one altar. For this special occasion, I think altars had been put all over that area. And not only that, many of the people in the nation were not able to make the trip to Jerusalem. And they wanted to participate. And I think all over the land that there were altars erected at this time so that you have to put all of this together and recognize that there were many altars on which it was offered. It is not a physical impossibility. Now, why all of this expenditure, though? Well, in order for each area to have its own particular sacrifice, was the same thing that when they came out of the land of Egypt, there was a lamb slain for each home, you know. And as a result, there must have been literally thousands of lambs that were slain that night. But it was not a needful waste. Number one, the primary meaning, it speaks of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's pointing to Christ. My friend, it was Simon Peter who said that was precious blood that he shed, that we've been redeemed not by silver or gold, but we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And this is not a great expenditure because it's pointing to Christ. And then the animals were used afterward, the whole burnt offerings, of course, And those burnt offerings were totally consumed. But their other offerings, like the peace offerings and that, there was a dispensing of the meat for the use of the individuals. And it was a time of great feasting and not a time of fasting at all at this great celebration. 
So at least be fair with the Bible, my friend. And when you get a Bible perspective of it, why, may I say to you that this thing, indeed, I think, will stand up. And I've discovered that these people who are always talking about a great expenditure of money for anything for the Lord, it is amazing the criticism that can be made by even Christian people today. I was very much interested in the very dear lady, and she was interested in Bible classes. She had one in her home, and she was very much interested in music. And we had a Bible teacher that came, and the people liked him, and they gave him a very generous offering. And it was a generous offering. They gave him $500 plus his expenses. And he was there for 10 days. And she thought that was ridiculous, that that was too big an expenditure. And then she was on the music committee of the town, and they brought in an opera singer. He sang one night, and they gave him $2,000. She thought that was wonderful. May I say to you, it's interesting when something is being spent for the Lord, it's just a waste. But if it's being spent for the things of the world, it's all right. And those of you that think they're slaying too many animals, do you know how many animals are slain in the packing houses of this country a day? And I say to you, I'm not going to tell you because I don't think you ought to know. But literally thousands of animals are slain in this country every day, and nobody's saying anything or doing anything about that because that's to satisfy us. But this was for the glory of God. I don't know about you, but I'm on Solomon's side here. I feel like this was all right. It's pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he shed his precious blood for me. Now, verse 6, And the priests waited on their offices, and the Levites also with instruments of music to the Lord which David the king had made to praise the Lord, because his mercy endureth forever. When David praised by their ministry, and the priests sounded trumpets before them, and all Israel stood. I wish there's one thing that I could accomplish through this radio ministry, and that is to get God's people to praise the Lord and to say God is good, and that is mercy endureth forever. Oh, how good God's been to me. Has he been good to you, friends? Say so. God is good to us. Now, that is what Solomon is saying, and he goes back to David. Now we are told, moreover, Solomon hallowed the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, and so on. And I'm not going into these details here. Now I drop down to verse 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that came into Solomon's heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house he prosperously effected. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer. I have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, 
or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sins and I'll heal their land. Now, I'm going to spend the rest of the time on that verse because I know of no verse of Scripture that's been lifted out of context without any regard to the primary meaning, and it's used as a promise to us from God. If we'll do certain things in return, he'll do these things. And this verse has been tailored to fit into any local situation. In fact, it's been used to promote revivals. I do not believe that I participated in an evangelistic campaign where what the evangelist or somebody connected with it didn't get up and quote this verse and say, this is the verse we're resting on. Now, this method of handling Scripture reminds me of a kind of contest that you see in the magazine section of our Sunday paper. They give you a composite picture. There's the hair of some famous person, and then there's the eyes of another one and the chin of another, and you would figure out who it is or put them all together, you know. And you may come up with a Castro with a shave, by the way, in one of those pictures. That's not the way you'd handle Scripture. Only here in this passage, it's taken out of context, fitted into a present-day situation. And I believe that a careful consideration of this verse reveals its location and content and context prevent us from taking it like a capsule and swallowing it without some attention to its real meaning. We do violence to it by wresting it from its place. Just because it seems to fit into our plans and says what we want to say, We ignore its primary purpose and rob it of its vitality, and it becomes actually a meaningless verse. And I can't think of a more meaningless verse than this as it's being used today. Now, I want to speak very plainly to you. I'm a dispensationalist. I think it's the only system that deals with the entire Bible consistently. It gives a literal meaning to the Word of God and a real meaning to it. When I went away to my denominational seminary, and I graduated from a denominational college, I'm a graduate of a denominational seminary, most of the Scripture was absolutely ignored because they had no interpretation for it. Now, the way that we were taught was the Bible sort of like a corn crib, and you take enough out to feed the chickens and you leave the rest. And you don't worry about it. And the only thing is, you don't want to come back for more, because if you do, you might get in trouble. And I believe a dispensational interpretation has its problems, but it solves more problems than any other interpretation I've heard of. Now, I recognize the Sermon on the Mount. It looks forward to the kingdom, and it's going to be the law of the kingdom. But I think it has a message for us today. I think the Lord's Prayer is meaningless the way it's used in churches today by an affluent society. But I think in the Great Tribulation, that prayer is really going to mean something. 
Now, though I'm a dispensationalist, I'm not a hyper-dispensationalist. I do not exclude the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, for today, I preach on it. It shows that man comes short of God's standard. And I find the Lord's Prayer helpful. I pray it. I've written a book on it. And by the way, that book is available. Let Us Pray is the title of the book. And it's been republished, by the way. There is an interpretation of Scripture. That's one thing. There's an application of Scripture. That's something else. And the old Christian cliche is, all Scripture is for us, but not all Scripture is to us. Now, this verse of Scripture here, the interpretation is, it's not written to us. The application is, it is for us. Now, the setting as we've seen here was the dedication of David's temple, which Solomon had built. And it's God's word to Solomon concerning that land and in that day. And after the dedication, and Solomon prayed this great prayer, God answered Solomon. And now God remembers the prayers of his people. And he says to him here in verse 14, If my people which are called by my name. My people. Who's he talking to? Well, the, my people here is Israel, which called by my name. That was those people. The second thing, if they'll humble themselves. Third thing, if they pray, they seek my face, if they turn from their wicked way. Now, God promised three things to Israel. He'd hear their prayer, he'd forgive them, he'd heal their land. This was meaningful to Israel. Definite conditions God put down. And their history demonstrates the accuracy and literalness of these specifics. Now, this is the interpretation. When you come to the New Testament, John the Baptist says, Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Lord Jesus Christ repeated it, calling upon the nation to meet conditions, these conditions, and the promises of God would be fulfilled. It was a legitimate offer. They have been scattered throughout the world. They cannot have peace in that land today because they have not met those conditions. That's a literal interpretation. Now, the application. This verse has a message for me. I can't toss it aside. It's no meaning just because God did not direct it to me. It contains a prescription, I think, for this hour, a formula. My people, who's God's people today? He has a people today, and those people are the church. He gave himself for us. He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. And a lot of us are peculiar, but it means a people for himself. God has a people he says if they'll humble themselves. Well, the flesh is proud today. And we are told very definitely in the Word of God, Paul says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you, you walk worthy of the calling wherewith you are calling, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering. And that happens to be a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and humbleness is one of the things. Lowliness of mind is commended for the believer today. Now, if they'll pray, and we're told praying always with all prayer and supplication, and then if they'll seek my face, he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he said in the epistle to the Colossians chapter 3, 
If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Now, this is a message for me. And he says, if they turn from their wicked way. And God has a great deal to say about repentance for believers. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. That's Revelation 3:19. Hebrews 6 says, if they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance. And repentance, I think, is for the child of God. Now, what about God's part? Well, God promises. He says, I'll hear whatsoever you shall ask, you'll receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. That's First John, the third chapter. And he says, I'll forgive. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, heal their land. I don't see where anywhere he says he's going to do that. Secularism emphasizes this. No promise today that I can find where God guarantees material blessings. We're blessed with all spiritual blessings. And take you and me, aliens, enemies of God. We've been made now sons of God, redeemed by the blood of Christ. And he forgives us our sin. Heaven is our home and the new Jerusalem is our goal. We've been delivered from hell. And today, this verse has a message for us. But let's understand one thing clearly. It was not given to us. So let's use it along with the New Testament interpretation, my beloved. Now, I don't know why these folk who lift that verse out don't keep reading. Well, I think I do know why. Verse 15 says, Now mine eyes shall be open, and mine ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. Now, the very interesting thing, this is the dedication of the temple at Jerusalem. Now, if you do want to follow this particular injunction here, you ought to take the next plane that's going to Jerusalem and go up there. And I can tell you that there's no temple there now, but the Mosque of Omar is there, but that's where you're told here to go. And if you intend to follow this passage, I don't know why, folks, will lift out one verse. It was never intended that way. This was applicable to the people in that day, but there is an application for us today, of course. But I think that it'd be better to go get the thing that God says to us directly. Verse 16, "...for now have I chosen and sanctified this house." that my name may be there forever, and mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. I stayed in a hotel for a week overlooking the temple area. In fact, I could get up of a morning, walk out to my window in my hotel, that is the big door that was there, glass door, and I could just look out and see this temple area. And I thought, well, I'm looking this morning at a spot where God is looking also. That is a spot that is to him a very dear place. Verse 17, And as for thee, if thou wilt walk before me, as David thy father walked, and do according to all that I have commanded thee, shall observe my statutes and my judgments, then will I establish the throne of thy kingdom, according as I have covenanted with David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man to be ruler in Israel. Now, God has promised in the Davidic line, that there would not be a time when there would not be a ruler. And there's none around today on this earth that could claim to be in David's line. 
But there's one sitting at God's right hand today, and he's been told, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. Verse 19, But if ye turn away, forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I pluck them up by the roots out of my land, which I have given them, and this house which I have sanctified for my name will I cast out of my sight, and I'll make it to become a proverb and a byword among all nations. And that's what that place became. It's what it is today. It's not a sacred spot today. The mosque of Omar is there. And then he says, "...in this house which is high shall be an astonishment to everyone that passeth by it, so that he shall say, Why hath the Lord done thus unto this land and unto this house?" I stood with several folk overlooking the temple area, and one of them raised the question here, Why, this is supposed to have been God's house here. And look at it today. Why, there's heathenism here, paganism here, as much as there's any place on the earth. You'd think since it's God's spot that he's chosen that he wouldn't permit it. The thing that's happened is exactly what God said would happen. Now, will you notice, it shall be answered because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. And I was privilege to tell that individual that the Word of God says very clearly that it's because they have forsaken the Lord God, and they've laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore hath he brought all this evil upon them. We come down now to chapter 8, and in this chapter, the temple now is concluded. It's built. Now, the next two chapters tell something of the experience and the work of Solomon and his testimony in other areas. And this man became a very energetic ruler. He attempted to carry out all of the plans and purposes and promises of David. Now, notice verse 1, "...it came to pass at the end of twenty years, wherein Solomon had built a house of the Lord in his own house." You see, this was a long project. It took actually half of his reign to do this. This is the thing that God took note of, that the cities which Hiram had restored to Solomon, Solomon built them, caused the children of Israel to dwell there. And Solomon went to Hamath, Zobah, and prevailed against it. Now, we find here, this is the only warfare that's recorded during the reign of Solomon. And it doesn't seem to be very significant at all. We are told here in verse 9, But of the children of Israel did Solomon make no servants for his work, but they were men of war and chief of his captains, captains of his chariots and horsemen. In other words, he put those that were his own people in the army and used the others in the land as servants to do the menial tasks. Verse 10 and these were the chief of King Solomon's officers, even 250 that bear rule over the people. Now, here is something Solomon did that, of course, brought great difficulty. God just takes note of it. God did not bless it. In fact, God practically did not even recognize it. Solomon, verse 11, Solomon brought up the daughter of Pharaoh out of the city of David, under the house that he had built for her, as he said, 
My wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the places are holy, whereunto the ark of the Lord hath come. So Solomon built a palace for the daughter of Pharaoh, and it's the belief now of a great many that he married these different women. I notice this is an interpretation that you get today in Israel, that one of the reasons that Solomon married these different women from these different countries is because your father-in-law is not apt to fight against you. And that was one of the ways that Solomon brought peace to the land was to marry a daughter of the ruler. And when he did that, why, you see that the man is not apt to fight against his son-in-law. And it brought peace to the land. Well, whether that's true or not, I have a notion that's partially accurate. But we have that record now of this. Then you have other things that are told concerning Solomon here that we have already seen back in the book of Kings, of 1 Kings. Now we have this chapter. This is the final chapter that concerns Solomon. And it's the ninth chapter here. And what is it that God would lift out above everything else and give this chapter here us. Well, may I say to you that the thing that is important here is the fact that did Solomon succeed in doing what God intended Israel to do, to be a witness to the world? Well, the very interesting thing is that we are told here that it was accomplished, and the way that Israel was to witness is different than the way the church is to witness. Let me put it like this. Israel faced in. The church faced out. Israel was to go up to Jerusalem and invite the world to go. As we saw in the dedication of the temple, why the Gentiles were to come to Jerusalem to worship. But the church was to begin at Jerusalem and go to the ends of the earth. In other words, the church is to take the gospel to the world And Israel was to invite the world to come and share in the revelation of God in the temple. Israel was to bear witness to the living and true God as a nation in a world of polytheism, of many gods. And the church is to bear witness to a resurrection and living Savior as individuals to all the nations in a world of atheism. Now, Israel fulfilled her God-given purpose to a certain extent. And that's evidenced by the number of Gentiles who came to Jerusalem to worship and to know God through the service of the temple there. The church, you see today, it's the measuring rod of the number of tribes and nations to whom we carry the gospel. Now, it is today the inclination of all of us that are in the church to disparage the efforts of Israel, and at the same time, we magnify the success of the church. Constantly, we hear on every hand of the failure of the nation Israel. They fail. And at the same time, an exaggerated report is given of the success of the gospel in faraway places. Now, the fact of the matter is we're in an awful apostasy today. The days are getting darker, and there are many very wonderful Churches and pastors that are left, 
but these men know the difficulty of this hour in which we are living. I think there are few peripatetic preachers and some teachers that are sheltered in some institutions. They seem to be the only ones who are looking at the present-day situation through rose-colored glasses. Now, on the other hand, Israel succeeded in a far greater measure than we realize. And we measure their success by the final failure, the apostasy of the nation, and the captivity. Now, there was a period when they did not fail God. A witness went forth from Jerusalem to the nations of the world. They were drawn to Jerusalem like a magnet. The high water mark was during the reign of Solomon. The nation reached a crest and pinnacle at that time. Afterward, there was deterioration and a decline set in like dry rot. Now, the Scripture gives to us actually two examples during the reign of David and Solomon, and there were many others that were not isolated, but these two we know about. Hiram, king of Tyre, friend of David, came to know God. He made lavish gifts. He furnished material and workmen for the temple. He was a son of Japheth. The queen of Sheba was a daughter of Ham, and she came from the ends of the earth. And it's her story that we're going to look at. After all, in the New Testament, we have at the beginning very few illustrations given to us. The Ethiopian eunuch, son of Ham, Cornelius, a son of Japheth, Saul of Tarsus, a son of Shem. Now, the story of the Queen of Sheba is given to us to record that Israel reached the ends of the then-known world with a witness for God. We've seen this before, but very hurriedly, let me lift out some of the high points that are here. When the Queen of Sheba heard, that's important, she heard of the fame of Solomon. She came to prove Solomon with hard questions at Jerusalem with a very great company, and camels that bear spices and gold in abundance and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions, and there was nothing hid from Solomon which he told her not. In other words, this man Solomon told her of the secret of his kingdom, that God had given him wisdom, he built the temple, this was the approach to God. Now, will you notice verse 3? When the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon and the house that he built. This is very interesting to note here. The very interesting thing about it is that back in 1 Kings 10:24, we're told, "...and all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart." We are just given this one illustration of the queen of Sheba that came. You see, the nation Israel was successful in witnessing to the world. And the meat of his table, the sitting of his servants, the attendance of his minister, and their apparel, his cupbearers also in their apparel. But here was the thing that was impressive. And his ascent, by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Now that ascent, it was the burnt offering and that burnt offering speaks of Christ. And no nation had anything that would compare to an offering for sin. And this was the thing that was absolutely amazing to her, an offering that was pointing to Christ. David said so much about Christ, I don't think that Solomon left off talking about it. 
Now she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in mine own land of thine acts of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not their words till I came, and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the one half of the greatness of thy wisdom was not told me, for thou exceedest the fame that I heard. In other words, this woman said, When I heard about what God had done, why, I just didn't believe it. But she had faith enough that when she heard about the greatness of Solomon, she made a long, arduous trip. And believe me, it was a long, arduous trip in that day. She didn't go out to the airport and take a plane and was there in a couple of hours. It was a couple of months and probably longer across a hot, burning desert. And she came all the way in order that she might know something of the wisdom of this man and found out about his approach to God. And that was the thing that left no strength in her. And she had to say, I didn't believe it, but now I do believe. And she says, Happy are thy men, and happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee and hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighteth to set thee on his throne. And now here she is praising God. May I say she came all the way, the Queen of Sheba. There's one in Africa and one in Asia, Ethiopia and Africa and Yemen in Asia. She's called the Queen of the South, which is of spices, the uttermost parts of the earth, which evidently means she came all the way from Africa. Her entourage and caravan reveals wealth and luxury of the Orient. The wise men never made a greater impression than this woman made. And she came with great pomp and ceremony, everything befitting an oriental monarch. And then that burnt offering was what impressed her, most complete and perfect picture of Christ that's given to us. Now, how well did Israel succeed? Well, she came to know the living and true God. It's just like our Lord one day, you remember, when he spoke to the woman at the well. Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship God. The hour is coming, and that hour did come. And the day we're to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, but they came in Solomon's day. We are told in verse 22, these are the things to note. King Solomon passed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom that God had put in his heart. This man is now bearing a witness to the world in that day. Verse 25, And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots, 12,000 horsemen, whom he bestowed in the chariot cities and with the king of Jerusalem. This is a defect in the man's character, actually. The king was forbidden by the Mosaic law to multiply horses and wives. Solomon multiplied both. I was at Megiddo, and the thing that impressed me at Megiddo are the troughs there where they fed the horses of Solomon. That was one of his stalls that he had for them. Now we are told he reigned over all the kings from the river, even unto the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And the king made silver in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar trees made his sycamore trees that are in the low plains in abundance. And they brought unto Solomon horses out of Egypt and out of all lands. 
Now, he's one of the great rulers of the world. He's succeeded his father David. Now we are told, now the rest of the acts of Solomon, first and last, are they not written in the book of Nathan the prophet? And so on. Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel 40 years. Solomon slept with his fathers. He was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his stead. This is the record now, the reign of Solomon. Now we've come to the last division from chapters 10 through 36, and we have the division of the kingdom, and the emphasis now is upon the history of Judah. That is, the line of David. The emphasis is not here upon the ten tribes. What is it that is emphasized here in the history of Judah? Well, what we have here are five great periods of reformation and revival. And we want to pay particular attention to that because God emphasizes that in this section. Now, today we'll probably get to the first great period of reformation and revival under Asa. But now let's go back to chapter 10, and we find here Solomon has died, and now his son, Rehoboam, came to the throne. And I read chapter 10, verse 1. And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for to Shechem, where all Israel come to make him king. And it came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was in Egypt, whither he had fled from the presence of Solomon the king, heard it, that Jeroboam returned out of Egypt. Now, we do not have that in Chronicles, but back in Kings... We were told that this man, Jeroboam, attempted to lead a rebellion even before the death of Solomon, and he had to flee for his life. And he went down into the land of Egypt, and he stayed there to the death of Solomon. And now he returns and, of course, continues to raise up the rebellion in the kingdom. Now, if this man, Rehoboam, had been wise and his judgment had been a little bit more mild and modest, he could have saved the splitting of the kingdom, the division that came about. But he did not. Now we find that with Jeroboam back in the land, we read, And they sent and called him. So Jeroboam and all Israel came and spake to Rehoboam, saying, Thy father made our yoke grievous. In other words, the taxes were really the cause of all the dissension. I do not know whether you are aware of it or not, not only here, but probably the thing that has caused the revolution and rebellion and the downfall of more nations than anything else is this matter of taxes. It's what brought the Roman Empire to its knees, it is what produced the American Revolution. Taxation without representation was our problem, and it brought about the Boston Tea Party and so on. And if taxes keep going up as they are, it's time for another Tea Party because that is the thing that ultimately will wreck any people. And unfortunately, our representatives in the state and in our national government, just don't seem to think that's the problem. They just continue to raise taxes. Now, that was the problem 
appeared, Solomon had put on a tremendous building program. It was very impressive. Not only did he built the temple, but we're told in Kings he had built all sorts of palaces and buildings. It was a great building program. Well, that had to be paid for. And as a result, why, it caused an increase in taxes. Now, that gave Jeroboam here a lever whereby he could make a protest. And he came in to Rehoboam and he said, Now, look, your father made our yoke grievous. Now, therefore, ease thou somewhat the grievous servitude of thy father and his heavy yoke that he put upon us and we'll serve thee. Now, Jeroboam actually is very mild himself in his approach. He said, if you will reduce taxes, then we'll go along with you, but we won't unless you do. And so Rehoboam, he said unto them, come again unto me after three days. The people departed. That was a fair thing. It would give him an opportunity to look at what the indebtedness was, what was the wise thing to do. And the wise thing would have been to reduce taxes. Verse 6, And King Rehoboam took counsel with the old man that had stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived, saying, What counsel give ye me to return answer to this people? They spake unto him, saying, If thou be kind to this people and please them and speak good words to them, they'll be thy servants forever." But he forsook the counsel which the old man gave him, and took counsel with the young men that were brought up with him that stood before him. Now, this was definitely a breach here on the part of Rehoboam. He should have followed the wisdom of these men who had been counselors during the reign of Solomon. They knew what the situation was. But he turned to the young man, and unfortunately, why the young men are saying, well, don't ease up. We want this picnic to continue. All of us have got public jobs, and those of us that are not eating out of the public trough, why, we'd like very much to get in a trough also. So let's don't reduce taxes. Now, will you notice, verse 10, the young man that were brought up with him spake unto him, saying, Thus shalt thou answer the people that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, but make thou it somewhat lighter for us. Thus shalt thou say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. In other words, my dad came down on you heavy. I'm going to come down on you much heavier than that. For whereas my father put a heavy yoke upon you, I'll put more to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I'll chastise you with scorpions. That was probably the most foolish thing that this young man, Rehoboam, could have done. Now, verse 12, So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day as the king bade, saying, Come again to me on the third day. Now, he gave them this awful judgment of the young man. And the king hearkened not unto the people. You see, the other counselors said, actually, your father did overtax them. Now, it's time to stop this building program, and it's time we stop all this government spending, and the time has come to reduce the taxes. And by the way, have you ever heard 
of any governments ever reduced taxes? Have you ever heard of any of our politicians? They all go into office going to reduce taxes. I think I've voted for a half a dozen presidents, and every one of them is going to reduce taxes. Mine keeps going up. And I've been voting for governors, and I've been voting for mayors, and voting for different ones. They all promise, but they never keep it. I never heard of a government reducing taxes. It always continues to go up. And that's exactly what was going to happen here. It's interesting, human nature never changes. And so, actually, what happened? It was this. Verse 16, And when all Israel saw that the king would not hearken unto them, the people answered the king. Israel now is really the ten tribes. And Judah is Judah and Benjamin. And sometimes they're used interchangeably. In other words, sometimes the southern kingdom is called Israel. God looks at them as a unity, but they were divided over this. And so we read here in verse 16, They say, Now what portion have we in David? And we have none inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to your tents, O Israel. And now, David, see to thine own house. So all Israel went to their tents. And as for the children of Israel that dwelt in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Then King Rehoboam sent Hadoram, that was over the tribute, and the children of Israel stoned him with stones that he died. In other words, Rehoboam sent a tax gatherer up there to gather taxes. They stoned him to death. But King Rehoboam made speed to get him up to his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. Rehoboam didn't realize how incensed these people were. And now we read verse 19, And Israel rebelled against the house of David until this day. And that is up to the time Second Chronicles was written. Now Rehoboam goes back to Jerusalem, and he finds out that his kingdom has really been cut down quite a bit. And we find here that he gathered of the house of Judah and Benjamin, 104 score thousand chosen men, which were warriors, to fight against Israel, that he might bring the kingdom again to Rehoboam. Now, will you notice, he's doing again a very foolish thing. He's attempting now to have this internal warfare. This is a civil war now that's taking place. Now, we read, "...but the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak unto Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah." And to all Israel and Judah and Benjamin, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Ye shall not go up, nor fight against your brethren. Return every man to his house, for this thing is done of me. And they obeyed the words of the Lord and returned from going against Jeroboam. Now, God intervened. And so the thing that Rehoboam does now is, He attempts to build fortifications to protect himself from the northern kingdom. That which had been part of the kingdom of David and Solomon now is lost to him and becomes his enemy. And because of a very foolish decision he made by listening to the young man rather than to the wise counselors of Solomon. Verse 14. Now we find that the priests that were serving in the north and northern kingdom 
They all come south. Why? Well, verse 14, for the Levites left their suburban area, that is, they were given cities, you know, and their possession, and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had cast them out from executing the priest's office under the Lord. So all the priests that were in the ten tribes now come south, those that were to serve at the temple. And he ordained him priests for the high places, for the demons. And this is something to note here. This is demon worship, and for the calves which he had made. And we're told back in Kings that he made one calf put at Bethel, one golden calf put up at Samaria. And the people worship that. Now, back of this idolatry is Satan. This is Satan worship. I had the privilege of going to the seven churches of Asia, and you'll recall that the Lord said to the church in Pergamum that you dwell where Satan's throne is. His headquarters is there. And this is a city given over to idolatry. There's no place probably has been given over to idolatry. Back of this idolatry, there was demonism. And that is what it was. Demonism manifests itself in many different ways. Now we read, And after them, out of all the tribes of Israel, such as set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice unto the Lord God of their fathers. Now, there were some still faithful to God that would come out of the northern ten tribes and come to Jerusalem to worship. But Jeroboam now is drawing them away into idolatry. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam the son of Solomon strong three years. For three years they walked in the way of David and Solomon. Now, here is something that is recorded here, and you'll notice it's mention of several of these men. And because it's in the Bible, it is the judgment of a great many. That means God approved of this. No, God records this, friend, to let you know he doesn't approve of it. Now, this man, Rehoboam, did wrong in not listening to the counselors of Solomon and listening to the young man. He was wrong in trying to carry on warfare against the northern kingdom. Now, he's wrong in this. What is he doing now? Verse 21, Rehoboam loved Maacah, the daughter of Absalom, above all his wives and his concubines, for he took eighteen wives and threescore concubines and begat twenty and eight sons and threescore daughters. And we're told here in verse 23, he desired many wives. Now, this is the thing God condemned, you see. And this is recorded because this is history. This is what he did. And this is one of the many things he did that God judged him for and that he was brought low because of it. Now, we are told here in verse 1 of chapter 12. Listen to this. It came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. So Rehoboam led an apostasy. And what he's doing is wrong. God says he's forsaken his law. And God records what he did. He took all his wives and concubines, and he brought judgment upon the kingdom. 
My friend, God never proved of that at all. I think the most striking illustration of all is Abraham. There are those who say, Oh, look at Abraham. He took Hagar, and he had this boy Ishmael, and he got by with it. He didn't get by with it. In fact, he hasn't got by with it today. What's the real problem in the Mideast? Why, the big problem there has to do with the sons of Abraham. You have Israel, and you have the Arab. But who is the Arab? Well, an Arab guide took me down personally to the city of Jericho. I wanted someone that knew something about it to take me there. And this man, a very brilliant fellow, by the way, and he had worked with Sir Charles Marston, also Miss Kellum in their excavations, and he was very helpful to me. And I just made the statement about the fact that we were talking about that land, that God had given it to Abraham and his offspring. And this Arab smiled, and he said this, looking me straight in the eye. He said to me, Dr. McGee, I'm as much a son of Abraham as any Jew that's living today. And do you want to know something? He was right. He goes back to Ishmael. He boasted of the fact that he was an Ishmaelite, and he could trace his ancestry back to Ishmael. That's where he went. Did God approve of that? No. God records it as history, and he let you judge whether he disapproved of it. There never came a blessing in it, and it has been a thorn in the flesh down through the centuries. God condemns these things. Now, God records it here, but he records it just as he records the rebellion of Jeroboam and the unwise decision Rehoboam made. It looks like Rehoboam just wasn't good at making decisions. Now, what does God permit now? God, for the first time, opens that kingdom for the invasion of a major nation. What happens? It came to pass that in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed against the Lord. That is the thing. And what happened? Well, he took Jerusalem, and he lugged away quite a bit of the gold and the wealth of that kingdom. And what happened? You remember the shields of gold that David had brought and Solomon put there? Well, in verse 10, instead of which, King Rehoboam made shields of brass and committed them to the hands of the chief of the guard that kept the entrance of the king's house. This man now has to begin to bring in something inferior. No longer do they have shields of gold. They have shields of brass. What has happened? The judgment of God is upon them because of their sin. This was a great humbling experience for Rehoboam. He had been brought up in the affluence of the reign of Solomon and had seen all the blessing that had come, and he just thought that was going to go on forever. But now he sees that there's probably an end to it. And verse 12, when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him, that he would not destroy him altogether. And also in Judah, things went well. That's a very interesting statement. The minute they turned, this man humbled himself. God immediately withdrew judgment upon him and the people of Judah. Now we read in verse 13, So King Rehoboam 
strengthened himself in Jerusalem and reigned. For Rehoboam was one and forty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned seventeen years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And this is interesting. And his mother's name was Naamah, an Ammonitess. Now, you will recall that David was very friendly with the Ammonites. And although they made war against him, he'd been friendly. Now, we find here Rehoboam, a son of Solomon, that his mother was an Ammonitess. And that probably had something to do with the character of this man. As we saw in Kings, God always gives the man's mother. Why? Because she bears some of the responsibility. If he turns out to be a good king, she gets the credit. If he turns out to be a wicked, evil king, she takes part of the blame. She must. Now we are told in verse 14, he did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. Now the acts of Rehoboam, first and last, are they not written in the book of Shemaiah the prophet and of Iddo the seer concerning genealogies? And there were wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. Rehoboam slept with his fathers. He was buried in the city of David. And Abijah, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, you'll notice that the emphasis is on the kingdom of Judah in the south, and the line of David. Now, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam began Abijah to reign over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. Now, listen to this. His mother's name also was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel, of Gibeah, and there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. See, internal strife, civil war actually going on all this time. Now, will you notice verse 3, And Abijah set the battle in array with an army of valiant men of war, even 400,000 chosen men. Jeroboam also set the battle in array against him, with 800,000 chosen men, being mighty men of valor. And Abijah stood up upon Mount Zemarium, which is in Mount Ephraim, and said, Hear me, thou Jeroboam and all Israel. Ought ye not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over Israel to David forever, even to him and to his sons by covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, is risen up and hath rebelled against his Lord. Well, we have seen that there was a reason for that, and I think sufficient reason, the foolishness of Rehoboam. Now we are told, verse 7, And there are gathered unto him vain men, the children of Belial, and have strengthened themselves against Rehoboam the son of Solomon, where Rehoboam was young and tender-hearted and could not withstand them. Well, the interesting thing is he was not only young and tender-hearted, but he was very foolish. Now, it is a plea on the part of Abijah to try to bring back the ten kingdoms, but no use now, because Jeroboam has made himself king, and he's not about to make peace at all. And we find here 
verse 13, "...but Jeroboam caused an ambushment to come about behind them, so they were before Judah, and the ambushment was behind them. And when Judah looked back, behold, the battle was before and behind. They cried unto the Lord, and the priests sounded with the trumpets." Then the man of Judah gave a shout, and as the man of Judah shouted, it came to pass that God smote Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. And the children of Israel fled before Judah, and God delivered them into their hand. And Abijah and his people slew them with a great slaughter. So there fell down slain of Israel 500,000 chosen men. Now, that was a great slaughter here in this civil war brought about by the sins of the people. Now, we find verse 19, Abijah pursued after Jeroboam, took cities from him, Bethel with the towns thereof, and Jesenah with the towns thereof, and Ephraim with the towns thereof. Neither did Jeroboam recover strength again in the days of Abijah, the Lord struck him, and he died. Now, this is God's judgment on Jeroboam for dividing the nation, for dividing it. Now, we find verse 21, "...but Abijah waxed mighty." Now, here we go. "...and he married fourteen wives. He begat twenty and two sons and sixteen daughters. And the rest of the acts of Abijah and his ways and his sayings are written in the story of the prophet Iddo." Now, Abijah's no great king, but after him now comes a son that led the first revival. I'm reading now chapter 14, verse 1. We come now to the first revival, and this, by the way, is very important for us to see. So Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his stead, in his days, the land was quite ten years. Now, this is the first revival, and I think in this revival, as God has given it to us here, we actually have the road to revival, and revival at any time. And I want you to notice this, because it's very important to see. Very frankly, as I look about me today, it's not very encouraging because I think the road to revival anytime is a rocky, unpaved, uphill road. The road's well marked, the road maps are clear, but there are certain bridges that must be crossed. And it might be well to notice some of these bridges. Now, this man, Asa, is one of the five kings that God used to bring revival to the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom never had a revival. They had 19 kings. All of them were bad, and there's not one good one in the lot. There were 20 kings over Judah. Only 10 of them could be called good, and five of them were outstanding. They're Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Now, these five that are exceptional during their time, there was a period of reformation. It was incubated in a time of revival. And there's a strange similarity, I think, among all of them. Nevertheless, there is a striking difference. Now, Asa here was the first. Solomon was his great-grandfather. He was a son of Abijah. 
and Rehoboam was his grandfather. Now notice this man here. Verse 2, Asa did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Now this is the character of the king. This is the character of the man. Notice verse 3, For he took away the altars of the strange gods and the high places, and brake down the images, cut down the groves. And he commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers, and to do the law and the commandment. And he took away out of all the cities of Judah the high places, the images, and the kingdom was quite before him. The character of this man, he's absolutely outstanding. Now, will you notice verse 6? And he built fenced cities in Judah, for the land had rest. And he had no war in those years, because the Lord had given him rest. Now, he's a man of peace also. Now, we are told, though, if you come down a little farther, that Ethiopia made war against him. Now, we find here in verse 9, There came out against them Zerah the Ethiopian with a host of a thousand thousand, three hundred chariots. And he came under Marishah. And Asa went out against him, and they set the battle in array in the valley of Zephathah and Marishah. And Asa cried unto the Lord his God and said, Now notice this, he's not only a man with a wonderful character, who did right in the eyes of the Lord. Not only a man of peace, he did not want war, but he's also a man of prayer, as we see here. This is the private life of the king, and it's commendable. Listen to his prayer. Asa cried unto the Lord his God and said, Lord, it's nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee. And in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God, let not man prevail against thee. Now, friends, that's real praying. Not flowery, but direct and right to the point. It says exactly what they need. And he was a great man of prayer. Now, notice this revival that came about because he's this kind of a man, by the way. And we find here, and Asa and the people that were with him pursued them. Verse 13, under Gera, and the Ethiopians were overthrown. They could not recover themselves. God gave him a victory, you see, in this particular state. 